Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, March 7th through Tuesday, March 12th feature guest conductor Jakob Rusha and the orchestra joined by soloist Gil Shaham. The program includes Death and Transfiguration, an early work by Richard Strauss, Felix Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto in E minor with Gil Shaham, and after intermission, Vitor Dorosovsky Concerto for Orchestra. Here are program notes by Philip Pusher on Richard Strauss's Death and Transfiguration, a work lasting about 24 minutes. Shortly before he died, at the age of 85, Richard Strauss told his daughter-in-law that he wasn't afraid of death. It was just as he had composed it in Death and Transfiguration. Only a few months before, Strauss had read Josef Eichendorf's poem Im Abendrot, At Sunset, when he came to the lines, how tired we are of wandering, could this perhaps be death? He took his pencil and jotted down the magnificent theme from Death and Transfiguration that he had written nearly 60 years earlier. And then, summing up his life's work, he wove it into the closing pages of his Eichendorf setting, now known as the last of the four last songs. It's the marshalin in Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier who says, To be afraid of time is useless, for God, mindful of all his children in his own wisdom, created it. But like the marshalin, Strauss always heard the ticking of the clock, and he couldn't help thinking about death. He claimed that from an early age he had wanted to compose music that followed the dying hours of a man who had reached toward the highest ideal goals, and who, in dying, sees his life passing before him. In 1888, without a gray hair on his head and with another 60 years of life and music ahead of him, Strauss wrote knowingly of a man's last days on earth. It's a young man's view of death and a romantic vision of old age, scarcely touched by the chilling truths of infirmity and hopelessness, but it apparently still satisfied Strauss at the end of his own life. The first edition of the score, as well as the earliest printed programs, included a poem by Alexander Ritter, a fervent Wagnerian who had married Wagner's niece, Julie, and it was written after Strauss had finished the music and was offered as a literary guide to the piece. At the time, Strauss thought Ritter's scenario indispensable to an understanding of the score, but the best guide is really the one the composer himself wrote in a letter to a friend in 1894. It was about six years ago when the idea occurred to me to represent the death of a person who had striven for the highest ideal goals, therefore possibly an artist, in a tone poem. The sick man lies in bed asleep, breathing heavily and irregularly. Agreeable dreams charm a smile on his features in spite of his suffering. His sleep becomes lighter. He wakens. Once again he is racked by terrible pain, his limbs shake with fever. As the attack draws to a close and the pain subsides, he reflects on his past life, his childhood passes before him, his youth with its striving, its passions, and then, while the pain resumes, the fruit of his path through life appears to him, the ideal, the ideal which he has tried to realize, to represent in his art, but which he has been unable to perfect, because it was not for any human being to perfect it. The hour of death approaches. 
and the soul leaves the body in order to find perfected in the most glorious form in the eternal cosmos that which he could not fulfill here on earth. A born opera composer, Strauss begins with a deathbed scene, dark and uncertain, and filled only with the sounds of the sick man's faltering heartbeat. A sudden convulsive passage depicting the struggle with death ultimately gives way to the work's central theme, an impressive six-note motif, characterized by an octave leap, which represents the artist's ideals. The flood of memories begins pointedly with a storybook infancy of remarkable innocence. Childhood is the kingdom where nobody dies, wrote Edna St. Vincent Millay, the once popular poet who died the year after Strauss. Strauss then moves on through youth, marvelously evoked by the self-confident swagger of the horns, to romances of such passion that their recollection brings on a spell of heart palpitations rendered by the low brass and timpani. The hero revels in remembrance before there is one final defiant moment of struggle. Death itself arrives, accompanied by the solemn striking of the tam-tam. The transfiguration is like one of Strauss's own great opera finales, weaving the work's main themes together through a series of moving climaxes in music of radiant beauty. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Richard Strauss's Death and Transfiguration. And now on to Felix Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto in E minor, a work lasting about 27 minutes. On July 30th, 1838, Felix Mendelssohn wrote to his friend, the distinguished German violinist Ferdinand David, I'd like to write a violin concerto for you next winter. One in E minor sticks in my head, the beginning of which will not leave me in peace. With those lines, Mendelssohn began his last great work, a masterpiece to refute claims of a career in decline and a concerto that would prove as popular as any ever written. Sketches confirm that Mendelssohn knew very early on how this music would go, and an extensive correspondence with David spanning six years shows how much care went into the details. Mendelssohn was the architect, David his technical advisor. David and Mendelssohn were kindred spirits. Both were celebrated prodigies, born only a year apart. They became friends in 1825, the year Ferdinand David, at 15, gave his first concerts in Berlin, and Felix Mendelssohn, 16, composed the magnificent octet for strings that is one of the great miracles of all music. That summer, after Abraham Mendelssohn moved his family to three Leipziger Strasse in Berlin, the two young men became regular chamber music partners as well. The son of the famous philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, Abraham would later say, First, I was the son of my father. Now, I am the father of my son. Ten years later, when Mendelssohn was named conductor of the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra, he asked Ferdinand David to be his concertmaster. In 1843, Mendelssohn founded the Leipzig Conservatory. He appointed David to head his violin staff. He also hired Robert Schumann to teach piano composition and score reading, and soon added Robert's wife, Clara, to the piano faculty. Although Mendelssohn had written to David some five years earlier of his intention to compose a concerto for him, it wasn't until 1844 that he found time to work on it in earnest. 
The concerto was completed on September 16th, but as late as December 17th, he wrote to David one last time, asking him to look at some changes he had penciled in, even though he had already sent the score off to his publisher, Breitkopf and Hertel. I very much want to have your views on all this, he wrote, before I turn it over to the printer. David gave the world premiere on March 13, 1845, with the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra conducted by the Danish composer Niels Gatte. It was a great success. The concerto turned out to be Mendelssohn's last orchestral work, a powerhouse finale to a career burdened by the promise of spectacular and early accomplishment. Even the Italian and Scottish symphonies hadn't surpassed the masterpieces of his teens, the octet and the overture to A Midsummer Night's Dream. In achievement and popularity, the violin concerto proved to be their equal. This violin concerto has long been too well known for an easy appraisal of its real virtues and innovations. In 1921, the British music critic Donald Tovey wrote, I rather envy the enjoyment of anyone who should hear the Mendelssohn concerto for the first time and find that, like Hamlet, it was full of quotations. Perhaps the most famous of the quotations in the concerto is the very beginning, a wonderful singing violin melody launched after just two measures of orchestral curtain, a theme so effortlessly right that it comes as a surprise to learn that it gave Mendelssohn considerable trouble. The essence of both the theme and its accompaniment is all there in the first sketch. As Mendelssohn told David, it was a beginning that wouldn't leave him in peace. Although Mendelssohn wasn't the first composer to introduce his soloist at the start of a concerto, he seized on the happy idea of letting soloist and orchestra explore the exposition together, abandoning the traditional double exposition, one for orchestra alone, a second led by the soloist. The idea was part of Mendelssohn's design from the beginning, and it was followed by nearly every 19th century composer except for Brahms and Dvorak. Equally novel, though less imitated, is Mendelssohn's decision to move the soloist's cadenza from the end of the movement to the crucial juncture of the development section and the recapitulation. The soloist now takes the spotlight at the most dramatic moment in the movement. It's a powerful and satisfying tactic. The cadenza concludes with a series of arpeggios that continues even after the orchestra bursts in with the main theme, a reversal of their traditional roles. Novelty shouldn't overshadow the music's less historic moments. The first movement is one of Mendelssohn's greatest creations. There's evidence of his fastidious craftsmanship and inspiration in every bar. Notice in particular how he handles the important change of key and mode from minor to major. The solo violin quickly descends three octaves to its lowest G, where it becomes the bass line to a new melody in the clarinets and flutes. In his own Scottish symphony, Mendelssohn had played with going from one movement to another without a break. He now conceives his entire concerto in three movements as one continuous flow of music. The first, bridge, is accomplished by a single note, a low B in the bassoon, that outlasts the final chord of the opening allegro like a stuck key on a pipe organ. The sustained B finally rises the half-step to C, suggesting a new key, C major, and in turn, a new movement. 
The Andante is one of Mendelssohn's loveliest songs without words, a full paragraph of sweet melody and sensitive scoring. Even in his last letter to David, Mendelssohn was still worrying about the effect of the mixed bowed and plucked accompaniment. The mood darkens midway through with the entrance of trumpets and timpani. The bridge to the finale is accompanied by 14 measures at a transitional tempo in the character of a recitative before a showstopper aria. This is truly virtuosic material. Roulades, scales, and rapid passage work in virtually every measure cast in Mendelssohn's characteristic fleet and dancing style. The scurrying main theme carries the day at the expense of a little march tune that passes for a second subject. There's a fancy coda, and in the final bar, the soloist's high E pierces the stratosphere. Program notes by Philip Pusher on the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto in E minor. And now on to the Concerto for Orchestra by Witold Ludoslawski. The work lasts about 30 minutes. Witold Ludoslawski's was the first important concerto for orchestra composed in the shadow of Bartok's great work, but that appears to have inspired rather than intimidated him. Bartok served as a touchstone, a reminder of what could be done within a certain style and with a specific aim. For Ludoslawski, as for Bartok, the concerto for orchestra was intended as a reflection on the unprecedented virtuosity of the modern orchestra. The hallmarks of Bartok's masterwork are here as well. The arch form of the first movement, the broad chorale of the last, a certain similarity of gesture, tone, and language that's easy to hear, although less simple to pinpoint in the score, and yet Ludoslawski's score is entirely his own. Ludoslawski's Musique Funèbre, written four years later, was dedicated to Bartok's memory. Still, another composer links Bartok's and Ludoswalski's concertos. In the fourth movement of his work, Bartok parodies the battle music from Dmitry Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony. In the Toccata section of his finale, Ludoswalski inscribes Shostakovich's well-known musical monogram, D-S-C-H, or D-E-flat-C-B-natural, as translated into musical notation. But the references are quite different. Bartok intended a sly comment about artistic merit. For Ludoslawski, Shostakovich represented a major composer responding through his music to a political crisis, a concern he understood only too well. In 1948, Ludoslawski's first symphony was banned by the Polish government. The music written during the next years, culminating in this concerto for orchestra, was his response. In 1988, Ludoslawski talked with Alan Kozen of the New York Times about this period. The government stopped interfering with our musical life very early, probably because they decided that music is not an offensive art. It's not semantic. It doesn't carry meaning in the same way literature, poetry, theater, and film do. So they are not interested in it. I have never felt any pressure to write a certain way, but after my first symphony, I realized that I was writing in a style that was not leading me anywhere. So I decided to begin again, to work from scratch on my sound language. Obviously, I could not immediately begin writing concert works, so I wrote functional music. 
children's music, easy piano pieces, and small ensemble works. I did it with pleasure because Poland was devastated after the war, and this educational music was necessary. Eventually, I developed a style that combined functional music with elements of folk music and occasionally with non-tonal counterpoints and harmonies. The concerto for orchestra was the climax of this nationalistic folk-based music, a work that not only spoke to a politically defeated people at the time, but also continues to touch musicians of many lands today. Shortly after writing the concerto, Ludoslavsky's sound language changed again. In 1960, he heard part of a radio broadcast of John Cage's Piano Concerto, a work that leaves much to chance and is therefore different at every performance. Ludoslavsky remembers that those few minutes were to change my life decisively. It was a strange moment. I suddenly realized that I could compose music differently from that of my past. And so the rest of his career, including the Third Symphony, commissioned by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, was spent exploring and perfecting this new language, one that is based on the juxtaposition of ad-lib passages with strictly controlled music. In an interview given in 1973, Ludoswowski expressed surprise at the continuing interest in his early concerto for orchestra, calling it the only serious piece among the folk-inspired works of the period immediately following the war. On another occasion, he said, I wrote as I was able since I could not yet write as I wished. His dismissive attitude recalls Bartok, who kept reassigning opus numbers to his scores each time, excluding the earliest works that no longer pleased him. In this respect, the concertos for orchestra by Bartok and Ludoswowski differ. Bartok's came very late in his career. It is technically the last music he finished, although the third piano concerto was nearly complete at his death, and finds him at the summit, commanding the language in a way that only years of work and understanding make possible. Ludoswowski's early concerto for orchestra in no way suggests the direction his music would take. Borrowing Bartok's favored arch form, the first movement begins and ends with imitative writing set against repeated F-sharps, pounding drums in the beginning, the tinkling celesta at the end. Structurally, the movement is most closely modeled on the opening of Bartok's music for strings, percussion, and celesta. Midway, the music reaches several big engulfing climaxes punctuated by screaming brass. At least two themes are based on Polish folk songs, although Ludoswowski, unlike Bartok, treats them like raw material rather than cultural artifacts. The middle movement captures something of Bartok's famous night music, although for Ludoswowski, night is a time of furtive activity rather than mysterious calm. Again, the form is symmetrical, with quickly moving music for strings and winds, framing a slower section for brass. This central arioso, sung first by the trumpets, brings the movement to a terrifying climax. From there, the music flickers and dies. The final bars are a duet for tenor drum and bass drum marked triple P. The harps and double basses quietly launch the finale, eventually stating the Pasacalia theme based on a folk song that will serve as the foundation for 15 variations, all carefully dovetailed and growing in intensity and activity until the last, which recedes into silence. Ludoswowski then launches a powerful, bustling toccata, 
The music finally dissolves to reveal a solemn chorale intoned by the winds. The ghost of Bartok, again, the resemblance to the chorale in the second movement of Bartok's concerto for orchestra is clearly intentional. And then the music turns lively and sweeps to its conclusion. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Vitol Dolosławski's Concerto for Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.